And no other passage in the Bible has ever transformed my thinking about God more than this one. So hopefully it does the same for you. This is Psalm 16. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You may be seated. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the nature of God, who God is, some qualities and characteristics about Him, and specifically how those uh, transform our lives and lead us to live differently. If we know the truth about who God is, it should show up in, in how we live. And so over the last few weeks, we've talked about the greatness of God and the glory of God. We looked the first week that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God created all things. He sustains all things. He's in charge. Uh, the, the world, uh, the scripture said in Isaiah 40, that, that passage we looked at that week says that we're like grasshoppers compared to God. He's got it under control. We don't need to worry. And then we looked at the glory of God and we said that God is glorious, so we don't need to fear others. If, if God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the most amazing person we, we could ever know or see, if, if we have a glimpse of who he is and he loves us, we don't need to worry about what others think. So we've looked at the, the greatness of God and, and the glory of God, but without what we're going to talk about today, the greatness of God and the glory of God would be only a threat. It could only be used to hurt us, right? See, it's one thing for God to be powerful and strong and mighty, but it's another thing for him to be good also. Right? This is what we see in every sort of battle between villains and superheroes. Right? Those movies keep coming out and keep coming out. Both the superhero and the villain have power, but only one of them's good. Right? So, so the Green Goblin and Spider-Man both have power, but only Spider-Man's good. Right? If, if God wasn't good, all he could be is a threat to us, so, someone who's going to squash us, someone who's going to dominate us and, and just, just, just ruin our lives. But, but God is good, and that's what we're looking forward to today, is looking that God is good, so we don't need to look elsewhere. But there is something we're all looking for. And the truth is, if we can be honest, can we be on, I know this is church, we're supposed to just say what we're supposed to say, but can we be honest for a minute? There's something I'm looking for. There's something you're looking for. And we're not always sure that God can be trusted to provide it. We're not always sure that God is for us. We're not always sure that he's great. 
And so David in the scripture today is going to try to convince us that God really is good. Here's what we're going to look at today. If, if We're going to answer four questions. If you want to kind of track through how we're going to go today, uh, we're going to answer four questions. Here they are. What are we all looking for? Where will we find it? How do we get it once we found it? And why do we keep looking for it elsewhere? So what are we looking for? Where will we find it? How do we get it? And why do we keep looking elsewhere? What are we all looking for? I'm starting today on the premise that there is something that all of us, every single person in this room, is looking for it. You are, I am, what is it? A philosopher, Blaise Pascal, summarizes it well with this quote. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, and get this, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal says that that the fundamental desire that each of us has is this desire to be happy, to be joyful, to be fulfilled. People like to make a big difference about, well, happiness is based on your happenings and joy is whatever. I'm not interested in parsing the differences there. All of us are on a quest for happiness, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, delight, pleasure. We just are. That's an inevitable fact. It's, It's neither good nor bad. It's inevitable. We are all, every time, every day, every moment, everything we do, we are, we are doing something to pursue our happiness. So think about this. Every choice you've made, you've done because you thought it would bring you more happiness than the other available choices, right? So if you're married, you married the person you married because you thought it would make you happy. Maybe you were wrong, but... But that was what you thought at the time, right? If you got divorced, you got divorced because you thought that would make you happy. You're wearing the clothes you're wearing today because you thought that would make you happy. Now, get it. I, I don't think you thought, this will satisfy my life. But you, you picked what you're wearing because you thought that, right? You probably, you probably looked and went, I don't have anything to wear today. I'll wear that, right? You thought that would make you more happy than the other things. You you ate what you ate today because it was the best of the available options, right? Everything that you do, you do because you want it to make you happy. Even the moments of sacrifice in our life are things we do to make us happy. So some of you, you're caring for a, a family member or a friend, someone who's sick or dying or struggling and hurting, and, and you go, well, I'm not doing this to make myself happy. Yeah, but the alternative would be you don't care for that person and then you heap guilt and shame and scorn on yourself later. Cause you, so, so even in the act of being willing to suffer right now, you're saying, I'm, I'm going to do that because I think ultimately it will lead me to be happier than if I didn't. Do you get that? Do you agree with this? I mean, I mean, everything you do, everything you do today, where you choose to go to lunch or to go home for lunch, or right, you go, well, I... But, but I'd really rather go out. But I won't because it would make me happier to keep this money. Right? Everything you do, you do for happiness. And we are looking for happiness, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment everywhere. We look for it everywhere. We look for it in good things. 
And we look for it in bad things. We look for it in helpful things. And we look for it in destructive things. So some people are looking for this satisfaction and this fulfillment in, in relationships. They're looking for it in a spouse or in a girlfriend or in a boyfriend or in a child. And that child has become not just someone to love, but someone to fill the hole in their heart. That, that's a, a desire to be happy, but, but using a, a good thing to try to get it that won't satisfy. The alternative might be using things that are destructive. So using things like nicotine or pornography or sugar or all sorts of things, right? So, so there's, there's these different ways to do it. But all of us are on a quest to be fulfilled. Some of it's, it feels okay because it's, it's not a really bad thing. Some of it is, uh, is obviously destructive and bad. For, so another example. Some of you are going, what will really make me happy is if I'm healthy. And so you're going you're gonna to just live for, seek fulfillment in exercise and organic food and etc. And that's a helpful thing. It's not as destructive as as uh, potato chips and TV. And some of you are going to seek happiness there. right? The point is, we're all looking for happiness. We're all looking for fulfillment. And what we know, if we're honest, is that all these things, the relationships, the substances, the exercise, the people, the food, we know it doesn't fill us. It fills for a moment. It satisfies for a moment. But it's not ultimate. We experience those things and we have in in us the sense that there's got to be more than this. We're looking for something greater. The question then is, where will we find it? We look everywhere. Where will we find it? The answer is we will only find it in God. We'll only find it there. God has created us to be people who, who want and can experience joy And He Himself is the fulfillment of our joy. If we can know Him, experience Him, love Him, we can have the thing we're seeking for. And so Pascal, again, comes with this quote. And perhaps you've heard uh, variations of this idea. He's the one that originated, as far as I can tell. He says, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing. Do you get that? There's a hole in your heart and you, and you put in it a relationship and you put in it a degree and you put in it a beach house and you put in it all these other things and you just find it, it, it just, it doesn't fill. It says it can't be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Where did Pascal come up with that idea? Well, he came up with it in Psalm 16. Pascal just is borrowing from David, and David is telling us what's true about God. He's telling us in this passage about the goodness of God. And so what I want to do is I want to turn to Psalm 16, and I just want to go through this. Um, This was written by King David, uh, one of the rulers of Israel in one of the times of flourishing of the nation of Israel. And in all likelihood, he wrote this uh, psalm immediately after getting a promise from God uh, that God would fulfill his covenant and his promise uh, through through David. And so David is rejoicing. He's experienced the goodness of God and he writes this passage about it. Let's take a look at this. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He's saying, God, you're the one I'm going to run to. When the, when the pressure's on, when the heat is up, I'm going to go to you for refuge. And re- the reality is the, 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 the best way to see what you're trusting in to fulfill you is to ask this question, where do I go when the pressure's on? 
When the pressure's on, what do I turn to? Whatever I turn to in that moment to get through it, to endure it, to have strength to do what I could otherwise not do, that's what I'm leaning on. That's what I'm taking refuge in. That's what the Scripture would say is my functional God. So the pressure comes. People at work are critical of me. Things don't go the way I want. And I turn to food. I turn to alcohol. I turn to illicit images. I turn to Facebook and internet surfing. I turn to nicotine. I turn to my kids. Whatever it is that you're taking refuge in has become your God. And David says, you're my God. God, I take refuge in you. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And there where where it says, uh, I say to the Lord, all caps, that's God's name. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And you see that's lowercase letters. That word means master. You're my master. He's saying, God, I don't go to you just thinking that you're like the vending machine God. Like I go to you to get all the stuff I want. He's saying, I go to you as my master. I humbly submit to and surrender to you. And the reason is the end of verse two, I have no good apart from you. I, I, I could have all the world, but if I don't have you, I don't have anything good. And even the good things I have in the world are just echoes and glimpses of you and your goodness. That's what David's saying. Verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. What David is doing in verses 3 and 4 is he's contrasting, uh, other, he's contrasting two different kinds of communities. He's saying, not only do I love the Lord and am I taking refuge in Him, but I also delight in other people who do the same thing. That's verse 3. The saints who, 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 who who's, uh, the saints in the land, the excellent ones, in whom is my delight. These are other people looking to the Lord, to be satisfied to the Lord. David knew what Pastor John Cronwald was just talking about. You need, you need people. You need other people that are going to point you to who He is and remind you. The alternative is verse 4. Those running after other gods. And, and David says, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to align myself. I'm not going to get my strength and courage from people chasing other gods. Why? Look at the beginning of verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Everybody has sorrows, Right? I mean, there's not a person in the world that doesn't experience some sorrow. What David says is that if, if you run after another God, in other words, if you look for fulfillment and delight and joy, if you, find your, if you search for that thing your heart is aching for anywhere else, the sorrow that you're already going to have is just going to multiply. It's just going to get worse. It, 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 it's because your hope is in something that can never deliver. And we could just we could just pass the microphone around this room and you could tell story after story after story about here's the relationship I was in and I thought it would fill me and it didn't. And here's the job I pursued and I thought it would fill me and I didn't. And not only did these things not fill me, they multiplied the complication in my life. Right? So it might even be that my God is, is money and success and so I get this promotion... But as the famous philosopher, the notorious B.I.G. said, mo money, mo problems. Right? And now I got more issues. 
And I got this house and it's great and I like having a second home and it's a great, but now I got to manage that. And something breaks and I got it right. And, and just things multiply. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. In contrast, David says, but the Lord is enough for me. I don't need to run after anything else. He's enough. That's what he says in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is all inheritance language. This is all the idea of... of, And I love the end of verse 6. I have a beautiful inheritance. What's the inheritance? Is it property? Is it food? No, he's saying, Lord, you're my food. You're my chosen portion. You're my cup. You're the thing that satisfies me. You hold the lines and they've fallen for me in pleasant places because I have you. This, by the way, does not mean that if you follow the Lord, everything in your life will work out. What it means is that if you follow the Lord, you'll always have Him. And He's enough. Verse 7. I love the transition here in verse 7 because up to this point, David's been just talking about declaring here's who God is. But now he starts to get practical and he says, here's how I experience the goodness of God in my life. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. That word night has with it the idea of darkness and difficulty. David's saying in my darkest times, in my most difficult times, I turn to the Lord and he's with me. And he counsels me and he enlightens my eyes and he instructs my heart. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. What am I chasing? What am I pursuing? David says, the Lord. He's, he's my portion. He's my cup. I've set him before me. I've set, I've fixed my eyes on God. As we studied in in Isaiah 40, he beholds his God. He's saying, I'm going to focus on the Lord. And because he's at my right hand, because he's with me, I shall not be shaken. If God is for me, who can be against me, is what David's saying. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He's saying, the thing that I wanted, gladness, joy, security... Hope, that thing that my heart has been chasing, I have it because I have God. And I love how he says in verse 9, my whole being rejoices. Every part of me is caught up in the wonder of the goodness of God. Then there's also a future hope. So this is who God is, and there's present help now, but there's a future hope. Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament way of talking about death and decay and destruction and and hell. So you won't abandon me there. Or let your Holy One see corruption. This is incredible. Because do you know what the biggest threat is to your joy? You know what the biggest threat is to your satisfaction and your happiness? death. Right? You can go to a funeral home and find a corpse and put a smiley face on it. It doesn't mean he's happy. 
right? If, if, if your life is, is over, it's hard to have much joy, right? So some people will, and maybe you feel this way. Maybe you go, you know what, I just don't buy all this eternal life stuff, and yeah, I just am not sure. I just think, you know, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let me just, I want to live it up here. And that, well, listen, you have, what you're doing, if you do that, is you're, you're only allowing yourself to have any kind of enjoyment for like 80 years. Then it's over. And so what, what David's arguing for, what I'm arguing for is to say, I want you to have more joy than that. I want it to last forever. And, and what David's saying is, he's saying, God, you are so good that not only are you with me now, not only do I experience your goodness now, but I'm not going to ultimately die. Like I'll die but I have a hope of living again. I have a hope of life eternal. And that hope is that I'll be with you. That's what it says in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's saying, I'm on this quest for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for joy. Where am I going to find that? Verse 11, you lead me to it, God. You, you show me the path. And in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Not just in God's gifts, though we thank Him for His gifts and we can know Him through the gifts He gives us, but this is saying in God's presence, being with God, we have moments in our lives where we experience the presence of God in a tangible and overwhelming way. And, and there's this hope that that will continue forever. Pleasures. I love that word pleasures. It's a sensory word. Right? This is not just like, we're going to have joy forever. And it's like, tell your face. This is like, it, it's pleasures. Like pleasures, are, are you sense them. It's taste and touch and smell, and sight, and sound. That's, that's, that's pleasures. And, and that is maximized with God. See, we're all looking for this. And what we're all looking for, even though we don't realize it, is God. There's a quote that's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton. It sounds like something he'd say. Actually, he didn't say it. We don't know who said it. And it goes like this. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Read that again so you concentrate on it. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. He thinks he's looking for companionship. He thinks he's looking for pleasure. He thinks he's looking for someone to listen and care. He thinks he's... That's what what he's really looking for is God each of us. That's what we're after. When we turn to TV or internet or money or sex or career or family, what we're looking for is God. And get this, God is the treasure. God Himself. Right? That's why I love what Jesus says in Matthew 33 where He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has 
and buys that field. Do you, do you get this? The image here is, is you're, walk, you know, you're driving out here in the back roads of Queen Creek and you come across an oil well. What do you do? Well, you do whatever it takes to cover it up. And then you go and you liquidate everything you have and you buy that. Right? Because it's, it's a treasure. That, that's what he's saying. He's saying, God is this treasure. You, you, you leave everything else behind to have Him. That's why I, I'm not a fan of the question, do you believe in God? You know what? The, the Scripture says the demons believe in God. You go, well, I believe in God. Well, congratulations. You're qualified to be a demon. The question is, do you treasure God? Is there any part of your heart that hears this and says, yes, I, I've seen that, I know that, I, I want to see that. I, do you treasure Him? And not just treasuring Him for the good things, but treasuring Him all the time. See, we're talking today about God is good, and that's a statement you'll hear a lot of times in the church. And people will often say, God is good. And then there's always a phrase that comes after it. Some of you know it. You long-time church weirdos. Just kidding. I'm one of you. All right, ready? God is good. All the time. God is good all the time. All the time God is good. But here's the thing. We only say that after something good happens. Right? So the diagnosis comes back clear. The person lives. You get the promotion. You go, God is good. Listen, God is good even when it goes bad. One of my friends, Tom Schrader, is the teaching pastor at our Gilbert congregation. And years ago, his daughter, Sarah, was in a bad car accident. And it was life-threatening, potentially, and she was in ICU. And things had started to make a little bit of a better turn. And he showed up to preach on that particular Sunday. And all these people kept saying, God is good. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? He's letting Sarah live. Isn't God good? And he would say, yes, he's good. But so many people said this that he decided to scrap his sermon and just preach from the heart a sermon called God is good even if Sarah dies. Listen, the search we're after for joy and fulfillment, it's not found in the gifts of God. It's found in God. So the question is, how do we get to God? How do we get to Him? Right? Because, because there's, there seems like there's this wall of separation that keeps us from God. How do, how do we get through that? Is there a path that leads us to God? Because the, that wall of separation is formed, the scripture says, by sin. We, we can't get to God because we sin. The reality is we don't love God the way we should. We don't treasure Him the way we should. We're looking for all these other things in all these other places. There's a wall. We can't get to Him. So even if you see he is, the pa- he is the place of joy. How do you get there? Well, that's our third question. Fortunately, verse 11 says this. You make known to me the path of life. The path of life. You show me how to get access to you. Well, how do we do this? Well, Jesus uh, talks about this very thing in John 14. Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus carries on uh, the kingdom a promise that was promised to David. And Jesus says this, I am the way. That's the path. What's the path? Jesus is the path. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the path. So, how, so we see that God is the place of joy. How do we get there? We get there by trusting Jesus. 
He's the way. And, and, and notice, he doesn't say, I'm a way. I'm a truth. Fit me in if you like me. Or use Buddhism if you want. He says, no, no, no. I'm the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And some of you will think, well, gosh, isn't that incredibly narrow? And the truth is, yes, it is. It's absolutely narrow. We could spend a lot of time talking about how every truth claim is actually narrow. But we won't do that for now. But it's narrow. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Listen, the road of people that are trying to find their heart's desire in other places, it's wide. Everybody's on it. Verse 14, But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. To say, I'm, I, I can't, I can't, here's the imagery I have. There's this really narrow gate. And what we want to do is we want to take in with us all these other things that our hearts really love. And so our arms are full of our career and our family and our money and our food and our on and on. And, and we want to get in. And Jesus says, you've got to drop all that stuff and just say that I'm enough. Listen, if you will trust him, then you will have access to God. You can know God. And part of the reason we know this is because this verse, uh, Psalm 16:10, is a verse that is constantly quoted by the apostles when they tell people about Jesus. So in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 13, they quote this passage. Look back at chapter 16, verse 10. David said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. He's saying, I'm going to have life after death. But what the apostles knew, what the New Testament informs us, is that David wasn't just talking about himself. David may not have even known it, but he was prophesying about someone that would come after him. He was prophesying about Jesus. So the apostle Paul references this in Acts chapter 13, talking about David's writing. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He's saying, listen, you can go to David's tomb. Like, there will be life after death for him, but his body's like bones. But there's someone who, if you go to his grave, the stone's rolled away, the tomb's empty. His name's Jesus. It says, God... But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So there's this wall of separation between you and God. It's your sin. And you may go, well, I'm going to try to barge through it by being a good person, by reading the Bible, by giving to charity, by serving and getting in a redemption community. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through it. And this says you, it, it's not going to work. There's one path. It's really narrow. It's you saying, my only hope is to trust Jesus. Not because I'm a good person. Not because I'm trying to fix my life. Not because I'm really sorry for what I've done. But I'm trusting Him. Did, did you see that in verse 38 of, of Acts 13? That through this man, forgiveness of sins, through him. That's how you get to God. 
Well, then the last question is this, and this is the question that's just burned in my heart this, these last few weeks of preparing this, is if God is so satisfying, why do we keep looking elsewhere? The truth we're looking at today is God is good, so I don't need to look elsewhere. So why do we keep doing it? And even the heartbreaking part is that David did it. Right? David writes this Psalm 16. God, you're my everything. God, you're always before me. This is the same man who years later will be wandering on the roof of his house and will see a a beautiful woman bathing and will seduce her, commit adultery with her and impregnate her and kill her husband and cover it up. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like pursuing the Lord. Does it? No. And yet this is the same person who goes, God, you're, you're my everything. And yet he had a moment where he, he drifted. I, it reminds me of that, that hymn we sometimes sing from Come Now Fount where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. All of us, if you're a follower of, of Christ, you've had a moment where you, you ta- you've tasted that God is like this. And then you drift. I think for a lot of us, a lot of the time, sin, you know, we sort of have these options. We feel like I could, I could run to something else, I could sin, I could take refuge in something else, or I could trust God. And here's what it feels like. It feels like the option is, tr- sin is like a milkshake. And a really good milkshake. Like a Chick-fil-A peach or banana pudding milkshake. And I know I'm messing you up because they're closed today. You can't go get one. You're going to be hungry for one all day. They'll be open tomorrow. But sin feels like that. It's like, I know that would be good. I could taste that right now. I might feel a little bloated later, but whatever. That's how sin, that's, that's the offer that other things, that's how it feels like. And then it's like, well, no, 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 trust God. But it feels like God is like broccoli. Doesn't it feel like that? And you're going, I know broccoli's good for me. I know it's better. But it doesn't taste better now. And I just would rather have a milkshake. I don't know about you. That's, that's what it feels like sometimes. There's times. There's these moments like a, a flood. Christy Brazelton a few weeks ago when she was up here sharing, she talked about songwriting and how some song she writes comes out of the flood. God just overwhelms her with an idea or with a truth and it's just like, just comes out. And there's moments like that in following God where it's like a flood. And, and, and when you're in that moment, it's, it's overwhelming. It's joy. It's, you're, you don't even think about yourself. You never want it to end. It's a feeling of rest and of peace and of home. And when you're in that moment, you, you would just never even want sin. And I'm, and I'm told by people that eat healthy <laughs> that you could reach a point where you eat healthy all the time to the point where like a milkshake wouldn't even taste good. It would make you sick. Okay. Good for you. But, but what do we do in the moments when there's no flood? What do we do in the moments when we're not overwhelmed by us? Right? And, and those flood moments, I mean, they just come at the strangest times, don't they? 
Sometimes they'll happen in here when we gather and sing. Sometimes they happen when you're just out in creation. Sometimes they happen when you're reading scripture. Josh, before he read this scripture, uh, you know, he, he's told me he, he was overwhelmed one time reading this passage in a Barnes and Noble in Fort Worth, Texas, and the flood just came. But, but most of our life is not that. What do you do? Just go, well, I'm going to like broccoli. Why do we see it that way? There's a couple reasons why. Um, one is we're just absolutely committed to instant gratification. Right? So I need, I need pleasure. I need an answer. I need what I want now. Which is basically saying, I think I'm God. I think I should get whatever I deserve. I want it now, so I'm getting it now. So that's, that's just that's sin. The other reason is we're just so broken and distorted and, and messed up. We're screwed up by sin. I mean, think about the words that the Scripture uses to describe us. It, the Scripture describes us as being in darkness, as being fools, as being um, blind and deaf and dumb, as being whores, as being wicked and evil. That's how the Bible describes us. And so we could take something that's true, and this is absolutely true, and yet we believe lies instead. And so we're, we're jacked up on a lot of levels. It, and this is, this is not just a mistake. The Scripture calls this evil. Look at Jeremiah 2. This is an incredible passage. God describes evil. And He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Now listen, we heard, you hear the word evil thrown around, right? You think mass murderer, terrorist, right? That, that's what you think. What does God say is evil? My people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says it's, it's evil when you make that kind of exchange. When you, when you elevate exercise or your children or your spouse into that, when you try to fill your heart with that, that's evil. You have a fountain of living water. I would love to be that fountain of living water for you. I love you. I've proven it by giving you my son. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Why do you spend money on that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which is not satisfied? Come to me and I will delight you in the richest affair. Come, come. And we go, I'd rather have money. God says that's evil. So our problem, the problem's with us. The problem's not that, well, God needs to meet my needs faster. No. The problem is that we believe lies that aren't true. That's why we need this truth. God is good. You don't need to look elsewhere. The moment you need that is when you're tempted to believe a lie. We're totally screwed up by sin. Mostly our desires are too weak. Yeah, weak. Right? When we think about these other pursuits, we often think, well, 
You need to have less desire. You need to, you know, you're, you're pursuing all these other things. If you just squelch your desire and focused on God, that would be the answer. No. The, the, the reality is our desires are too small. We think that a human person who themselves is broken and messed up by sin could fill us. That's, that's a small desire. We think that enough money to have all the vacations and retirement we'd want, that, that's, a sm- that's small. That's nothing compared to God. So philosopher C.S. Lewis said this, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Right? You see, there's people who would go, well, you should just don't, don't want to be happy. He's going, no, that's, that's ridiculous. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He goes on to say, we are far too easily pleased. So what do we do about this? We have to repent. We have to change our mind. We have to have a change of heart that sees that our desires are too weak. We need to be satisfied by the only one who can satisfy. We need to, as it said in Psalm 16, 8, set the Lord always before us. But here's the main thing that I, that I want to encourage us with in this. How do, you, how do you build a habit of turning to God instead of turning elsewhere? Here's, here's how. You can't just rely on the flood. You have to build a well. So Christy talked about there's some songs that come out of the flood. Right, this is just God pours this out and it just I write the song in 10 minutes. Right? And there's times like that in our life. There's times where we just experience the flood of God's presence, the flood of joy with him. And what happens is we, we when we have these moments of temptation, these moments where we're tempted to look elsewhere, we think, "Well, God, you're not overwhelming me with the flood. If you really wanted me to be pure, if you really wanted me to obey, if you really wanted me to do the right thing, you'd show up right now with your presence." You'd flood me. We rely on the flood when what we need to do is dig a well. See, Christy said, some songs I write come out of a well. Scripture I've studied, prayers I've prayed, experiences I've had, and I sometimes just have to go to the well and dig out things that I know that are true even when I'm not feeling them. It's the same thing here. You need to dig a well. And in that well needs to be Scripture. Truths about who God is. You need to get in that well, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And, and at that moment, what you know has to trump what you feel. Has to. And you've got to dig that well of past times of seeing God answer prayer and past experiences of floods in your life of God's presence. And, and, you, and you draw on that in the hope and trusting that as you depend on Him, more and more times of flood will come. 
But do you believe that in God's presence is fullness of joy? I'm just so struck by that phrase, fullness of joy. What are the moments in life that point us to the fullness of joy? See, I'm not content to go, well, God's like broccoli, and if you just wanted to eat better, you would like God more. I think that's a weak description of God. I think, I think God is so much better than that. If, he, if in his presence is the fullness of joy, where do you get glimpses of that kind of joy? Where have you tasted that kind of joy? I've tasted it when I watched my bride walk down the aisle for the first time. Well, the only time. I taste it when I go in my house and my kids scream, Daddy! Run to me. You taste just a glimpse of the fullness of joy when you go to Disneyland and you have Dole Whip. Maybe the fullness of joy for you is that movie that you love and you've watched it a hundred times and every time the ending is great, Rudy sacks the quarterback and your tears flow and it's just great every time. Maybe joy is when your teenage son hugs you in front of his friends. Maybe it's when all the kids are home for Christmas. Maybe it's that t-shirt that's just so perfectly soft. And every time you get it out of your dresser and you put it on, you just go, oh, just fits just right. Maybe it's the contagious laughter that you have with friends. You know the times when you're laughing just because you're laughing and you don't even remember what you were laughing about? See, all of those are little glimpses that God gives us of his presence. I so long to believe that he's right when he says that in his presence is the fullness of all those things. Not just the glimpse of it, not just the echo of it, the fullness of it. Let's trust him for that. Let's pray. God, we pray uh, with thanksgiving for you revealing yourself to us, God. You are our treasure. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your, pre- at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, we so long to know and experience you in the power of your presence. We thank you that you're good. God, give us faith to believe this. God, for those who have not yet trusted you, God, I pray that they would trust Jesus, that they would uh, see that their, their desires have been too small and too weak and that they would go to him and find in him the source of life and joy. I pray for that in Jesus' great name. Amen.